I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 17. Our text this morning is in verses 13 through 19. Jesus has, for the most part, finished his discourse with his disciples from the time of the upper room meeting for the Passover supper, what others have called the Last Supper, but it was the Passover supper. And and by the way, everything in Passover and everything in a Passover supper or Seder, everything points to Jesus Christ. So he was really uh, sharing and ministering and and, uh, uh, giving forth instruction as to every part of, of what he came to do would be fulfilled in just a few short hours. Now it's taken us weeks to get through all of this from chapters 13 through 16. But as we come to chapter 17, now we come to the prayer of Jesus, the true Lord's prayer, where he prays unto the Father, not just giving us a pattern of prayer as he did in Matthew chapter 6, but actually praying unto the Father, letting, just sharing from his own heart that he has come and accomplished and finished what he came to do. Of course, in a few hours, that would be completely uh, done. But he was also praying for his disciples. And uh, so uh, this is what we've looked at for the last couple of weeks in chapter 17. But now as we come to chapter 17, verse 13, and, and down through verse 19, which is what we're going to look at today, the key focus here is on sanctification in that Jesus says sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth verse 17 but to get there we we need to understand what he said in verses 13 through 16 now we talked a little bit about that last week but very little and there are some details that I want to cover today in setting up verse 17 So let's begin reading in verse 13. Now remember Jesus is continuing to pray and his disciples are actually there with him and they hear him praying unto the Father. And he said, and now come I to thee. Now he says to the Lord, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming, you know, he's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again from the dead and then he's going to ascend into heaven. He says, and now come I to thee and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's not just about his disciples, but every disciple after them. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Father, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, for your wisdom and for your understanding to be given to us as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. There isn't a person that I know that doesn't like to receive gifts. 
Now, there will be some people that will say, well, no, I, you know, I don't like to receive gifts. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. So don't, don't lie, okay? So there's a person that I know that doesn't like to receive gifts. Now, we could argue whether some people give too many gifts to some and others give very little, if anything at all, to others. But receiving gifts is something each and every one of us appreciates at one time or another. The very heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is revealed to us in words by the Apostle Paul in giving example for us to be givers. When he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 verse 35, he says to them, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what this reminds us of is the very giving nature of God. God is one who gives. And he gives without measure and he gives without limit. In all sorts of, and, uh, of ways and, 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 and in various ways and, 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 and really uh, abundantly to his people. So this particular thought, and this is why I bring this up today, because this, this rings so true in this passage here in John's gospel. First of all, we see that the Father has given the disciples and all subsequent followers, he's given them to Jesus. That's what it says in verses 11 and 12. Let me just refer, refer you to them. In verse 11, he says, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. What he says when he says keep is keep, which means to hold and to watch them, hold them, watch them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me. That is part of his prayer for his disciples. And then he says in verse 12, those that thou gavest me, I have kept. I have guarded them. I have preserved them. And so we see how God the Father has given his disciples or the disciples to Jesus. The word give is very, very clear. It is, it is a gift. Have you ever considered yourself as a gift from God the Father to the Son? Interesting thought. But then in verse 13, Jesus implied the giving of his gift of joy to them when he says that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But it is in verse 14 that Jesus mentions the gift of God's word. And notice that he said, I have given them thy word. If you go back to verse 8, notice that Jesus also said this. He said, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So now you realize how important it is to appreciate what is given to you as a gift. Because here is the reason why we must never take the word of God for granted. It is because the Father gave the word to the Son, who, by the way, was the word made flesh. And then the Son gave the word to his disciples who in turn have given them to us as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
how that has gone from, from the Father to Jesus to his disciples and brought to us is truly a miracle. It is truly the work of God's hand. It is truly the work of God's purposes for us to be sitting here today with God's word in front of us. And not only in front of us, hopefully in our minds and in our hearts. And this is what Paul says to, to Timothy, the son in, his son in the faith. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17, he says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and, been, and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Of course, in, in his writings, we, we learn of, of uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. But then he goes on in verse 15 and says, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, Notice, what is important for us to know is what God has given us in his word. So he says that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. I think that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be wise unto salvation. Because it is another gift that God has given us. And so he says, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What a gift God has given us in his word so that we might understand the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And then he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given as a gift by inspiration of God, which means it is God-breathed. This is why we can't take the word of God for granted. This is why we can't mess around with it and change what it means. In some of these new modern translations that we, you know, sometimes we're more confused by reading some of those things and trying to compare it with some of the older manuscripts. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, which means to be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And it was the Apostle Peter who also added to this thought of the importance of the Word of God when he says in 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. By the way, the day star is Jesus. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God, men separated to hear God's word and record it accurately. They were moved by the Holy Ghost for that reason. And the word of God is a precious gift from heaven then. It is, a, it is of divine origin. You know, some people may try to sound intellectual and say, well, you know, the, the, the Bible was just written by man. Well, you don't know that until you read it yourself. You're not an expert of it until you know what it says. So it is of divine origin and it is of great spiritual and eternal value for those who are overcomers in the faith of Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize that fact of being an overcomer. And each and every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ in this room today is an overcomer. Because through Jesus Christ, we have overcome sin and death. We've overcome Hades and hell. And we've overcome ourselves. 
Because we're pretty good enemies. We were pretty good enemies of ourselves a long time ago. And John, when he writes to the church in 1 John 4, verse 4, he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Speaking of really the, the spirit of Antichrist and those who would hold to the spirit of Antichrist. He says, You have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But then he says in 1 John 5, verses 3 through 5, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So we've also overcome the world. And then he says, And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Which is a gift. Which is something that we've been given through the word of God as we were saying earlier. So he says, and this is the victory that, uh, that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, says, and, 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 and you believe what he says of himself to be not only the Son of God, but God the Son, then you are an overcomer. And so the reason that I want, I want to start here today, because, you know, we... we just kind of read through some of these verses. But the reason I want to start here today, returning to this passage in verses 13 to 16, was to encourage you that the word of God enables us to overcome the world because it gives us, here's another gift you get from the word of God, it gives us joy. It gives us joy. And as I said last time, this joy gives us the strength to overcome. Remember we read from Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 10, where it says, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, which means don't be sorrowful. He says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, for those who might not know, what, what had just happened after the building of the walls in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time? Well, after they built the walls, the people all got together and they stood before the one who was to read the word of God. They stood there. The book of the law was read, which is the word of God. And the people attentively heard, many for the first time, the word of God spoken to them. And think about the, the response to what they heard. Because the people responded with weeping. We're told there in Nehemiah chapter 8. They responded with weeping. They were, they were weeping because now they were hearing God's word and it was touching their lives and their hearts and their, that weeping was part of their worship because they were saying, we understand what is being said. Others were weeping as well, but they were weeping because of the weight of how the word of God brings that conviction of sin into their hearts and into their lives. And they began to weep over that sin. And they wept as a part of their worship to God because they understood their need for the God who loved them. And yet they were not to be grieved, the scripture says. But they were to rejoice because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And listen, 
to rejoice. Think about the word rejoice. We come and we sing and we rejoice and we say, oh, we rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice as Paul said. What, what word is found in the middle of rejoice? Joy. That's joy. And my encouragement to you today is to take the time to hear, take the time to read, but also take the time to understand and to be transformed by the word of God. Because the benefits are tremendous. The benefits are tremendous. And just a reminder, by the way, joy comes from answered prayer. Joy comes from answered prayer. Go back to John 16, if you will, just a page before, verses 23 and 24, because this is something that the disciples had already heard. He said to them, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. I don't think you're going to say, you know, Lord, I don't like to get gifts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you're going to like this one. He says, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Don't forget that we ask according to his will, not ours. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. So answered prayer is a way that we receive the joy of the Lord. So that, that kind of joy or this kind of joy that the Lord Jesus had and, and wants us to have is not that short-lived, transitory, light-heartedness of a sinful world, but the enduring pleasure and satisfaction of God's presence and the wonders of his precious word. That's what joy is. We're not talking happiness here. I mean, happiness is a good thing. We're, ta we're talking about something that goes way beyond the happiness of this world. The joy of the Lord. That's our strength. It's a big difference. One day you can be happy, the other day you can be sad, right? Emoji time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we're not emojis, folks, but we do have emotions. But let's not be moved by our emotions, let's be moved by the Spirit of God. So he never, you know, Jesus never depended on external and superficial situations and circumstances, but, but on the innermost spiritual resources that the world could and will never discover. The world cannot discover the things that, become, that come from God unless God opens people's eyes like he opened ours. And this is what Jesus depended on. This is the kind of joy that the Lord wants us to have through his word. Think about the prophet Jeremiah for a moment. Where Jeremiah and John, uh, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, Jeremiah says this. This is part of his prayer unto the Lord. And he says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah had come to the realization that God had called him from an early, uh, at an early time in his life. God had called him, even from his mother's womb. And God was going to use him. But if one thing that prophets needed to understand and prophets needed to know 
was that the word of God was a gift for them. But it was a gift that they could either take or reject. And he took it. Took it like the food that we need each and every day of our lives. He said, thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The strength and the rejoicing. It was the worship of his heart. Stimulated by the word of God. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. You'll see that in a moment. Psalm 119, verses 14 through 16. The psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Listen, when you go through all of Psalm 119, you begin to realize that there are words like testimonies and, and precepts and statutes and, and commandments and, and so on and so forth. Every one of those words is pointing to some aspect of the word of God. So he's talking about the preciousness of God's word. So he says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. What way is that? The way that those testimonies move upon the hearts of those who believe them. And trust in them. Jump all the way down toward the end of Psalm 119, verses 161 and 162. <laughs> That's a lot of way down there. But 161 is 162. And it says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. And you know, princes, kings, uh, you know, national leaders or whatever, uh, they, they, they can persecute people uh, even without a cause if they want. And, and, and usually it's to, it was, in ancient times, it was to take whatever they had from those that they didn't like. That was called spoil. They would take it, it becomes theirs. But the psalmist says, listen, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. So you can take whatever you want from me. I've got the spoil because I've got the goods. And that is the goodness of the word of God. The wonders of the word of God. My heart standeth in awe of thy word. You know what that means? That means all I can do is worship because you've given us your words. You've given us your way. I stand in awe of your word. And another thing that the word of God imparts along with joy is the assurance of God's love. Because if you go back to John 17, verse 14, you may not see the word love in this, but it is just dripping with the love of God. Notice that it says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Where's the love here? Think about this. He says, we're not any longer like the world. Now we're like him. We're not him, but we're like him. And we'll be more like him every day. So this is how much God loves us. That he has made us his own. And every day, he changes us more and more into the image of Christ. For Jesus to say, I'm not of the world, they're not of the world. They're with me. 
It's no mystery that the world hates God's people. There's no mystery that the world hates God and Christ and God's word and, and the church and Christians and you can go on down the list. It's no mystery. Even today, we have seen a complete turnaround in our national, cultural, and societal, religious, philosophic debate. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been quoting from these surveys, you know, recently that, that just say how weak, you know, things have become in the church, you know, and, and you know, people just not having worldviews uh, that, are, that are biblical any longer. Less and less people attend Christian churches, and even those who do have a, either a limited or non-existent biblical worldview. And sadly, they are more like the world and less likely to be true followers of Christ. And I know that I've mentioned this time and again, but I, I have to say that I've been in some churches where I'm the only one with a Bible. And everybody else is just, you know, whatever they're doing, they're doing whatever they're doing. <laughs> I want to I hear God's word. I mean, is it, is it any wonder that Paul, John, and James admonish the church on this issue of the world? Think about what, uh, what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2. And, and let me just tell you, keep, your, keep a bookmark there because I am going to come back to Romans 12. But in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul said, And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Conformed. Con, chile con carne, <laughs> chile with meat, with, see, con. So conform means to be formed with the world, and he says, don't be conformed with the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed. Don't conform to the world. It's easy to conform to the world because it's all around us. And remember the fact that, uh, that we are told in the scriptures we are in the world but not of the world. And, that, and that's the warning that we all need to take heed of every day. And then it was John who writes to the church in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. I know I quote this a lot, but nonetheless, it's a reminder because that's what the, that's what the Lord would have us to understand, that we're not to love the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think that's pretty clear and plain. And there, 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 there's no in-between here. There's no compromise here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Two conflicting positions. There's God's position, and there's the world's position. And there's nothing in between. There's no no man's land. A lot of people want to live in no man's land. Some like, to, some like to live in no man's land by thinking that they got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. That's not going to help. You can't reach far enough on either side. The world will pass away, it says, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
And then in James chapter 4, verse 4, and, and James now uses, and he's speaking to the church here, he's using terminology that is most strong, not speaking to the world, but to the church, using really the, the, uh, the attitude of the prophets that were, that were coming down on Israel for their lack of faithfulness to God. This is what this is about, their lack of faithfulness in God. They're trusting more the world than trusting in God. So he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. You keep wanting to have this and that, but you, you don't ask. You don't ask God. You don't come to him. You ask amiss for these things. And then there's all kinds of problems between you. So he uses that term to wake them up. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And again, how clear can that be? How much clearer can it be? So when you think about it, even if the world hates us, we are able to stand fast. We are able to stand fast in confronting this hatred with what? With the precious love of God. Because if the world hates us, God loves us. And Jesus said it. He said it to his disciples, and I'll read that in just a moment. God said it, uh, Jesus said it to his father in his prayer. But if the world hates us, God still loves us. It is a love that has been imparted to us, by the way, through the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, through God's word. That's how we know. Some of us may remember that the very first thing we heard before we came to Christ was, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, now we were in the world then and of the world, but God loved us, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, in the sense of the people that were in it, that were created in his image, but that the world through him might be saved. And so it is a love that has been imparted to us by the Holy Spirit through God's word. And that hatred of the world is aimed at us simply because we no longer belong to its wicked system. We no longer conform to its standards and practices. And as Jesus already made clear to his disciples in John 15, verses 18 and 19, notice what it says. Remember, Jesus already said this to them. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And even more probably because Jesus loved us and chose us. Look at a mirror. He chose that? Well, okay, maybe me, but I mean, you know. <laughs> the, the, point of, the point of the matter is, what makes us so special that God would choose us? Because we're sinners. His, his love amazes me. 
great hymn, Amazing Love. Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be? What the word of God does and what it does do, it reveals to us what the world is really like while exposing its deceptions and dangerous, wicked devices as well. And those devices, devices are... uh, the word devices is used in scripture. It, it, it means strategies, plans, and usually it's used of the devil, as you'll see in a moment. But Paul, while dealing with the needed restoration of a man back, you know, restoring a man back to the church of Corinth, uh, this was a thing, thing that came up in chapter, uh, or I should say, in, in the first book of, of Corinth, or Corinthians, and somewhat gets resolved in the, in the second book, uh, or the second uh, letter. Uh, which is what we're going to look at. But he was dealing with this needed restoration of a man to come back into the church of Corinth. He exhorted the church to forgive him. And, th- and this, is, this is what I want you to see in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 11. He said, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I, forgave I it in the person of Christ. And, and so he's talking about forgiveness, but then this is what he says. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of his strategies. One of his greatest strategies in you know, toward believers in Jesus Christ today, especially those who do not stay in God's word, One of his greatest strategies is to make sure that you do not forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Think about that for just a moment. Think about how serious that is in the church. If if there are people that don't love the person, you know, across the the way, well, you know, some people would would rationalize and say, well, I can forgive him, him, and him, and him, but that person, uh uh-uh. Can't forgive that person. It's something terrible to me, or said something terrible to somebody I know, or somebody I love, whatever, you know, I can't forgive them. Yet, what, what does it say about what Jesus said? Remember what Jesus said? He says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. There, there, were, there were no uh, uh, conditions. He didn't say, you know, he didn't say, well, forgive those, you know, forgive one another as I've forgiven you, except for that fool over there, and, you know, that idiot down the road and, you know, the Lord didn't say that. It's very clear. And because he loves us, the Lord protects us from those devices. And all the more since we have been given the word of God. We have the word of God daily. His word not only reveals the love of God, the love that God has for his people, but it reveals God's holiness and justice along with man's depravity. It is a fact that man rejects and refuses to face. He doesn't want to have a God that's holy and a God that's just. Why? Because he is depraved and knows what the consequences would be if he has to stand before a holy God. This leads to hatred toward Christ Jesus himself and the Son of God who demands total allegiance and commitment to become servants of God. 
And Jesus does demand total allegiance to him. Think about this. Paul, Paul writes, in the, and now you go back to Romans 12, because the verse, verse 1 we didn't read earlier on purpose, so we can read it now. And so here in Romans 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, what he says in, be, in saying beseech means I beg you. I beg you, beseech you. I plead with you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What he's saying here is, I don't want you just to come and bring me an arm or a leg or a thigh or your head or your toes or just your fingers. No, I want your whole body. I want everything that you are. Present your bodies completely and totally a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. And notice what he says, which is your reasonable service. That's reasonable. To God, that's reasonable. God wants everything. That is reasonable. For worship, for worship, not just a part of you. Because that's what a lot of people offer to God on Sunday mornings. Some people are very religious and go into church on Sunday mornings. And when I use the word religious, I really mean it. I mean, they're, they're in church religiously every Sunday morning and back in the world from Monday through, Monday through Saturday. But there's no... There's no reference point to God throughout the week. But they attend church religiously. But are they offering themselves as a living sacrifice? Because you know what a sacrifice is? A sacrifice is something that is given and then is consumed by God. <laughs> Fire! Ah! Be thankful, he says, a living sacrifice. But the, prob the problem is though, living, something living can crawl off. Uh, some people try to do that. Where are you going? Oh, well, God's not that way. He loves you. But it's what you do. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice every day. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul also said this, he said, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? You belong to yourself. He says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But God wants everything of you inside and out. And he wants everything of you outside and in. Just to be clear and sure, I don't want anybody to miss the point here. And what he says here in, in 1 Corinthians 6 is, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. That which is out and that which is in. That which is in, that which is out. All of you. Because you were bought with a price. So with all of this in, in, in our understanding, now the world hates us because we are not of this world even as Jesus was not of this world. Every disciple of Jesus Christ has been born again by the Spirit of God and given the very nature of God. The world and the devil want absolutely nothing to do with a selfless and sacrificial nature. They don't want that nature for themselves. By the way, if you were in the world before, you didn't want that nature by your, you know, for yourselves. You struggled. 
Maybe this is your testimony, but you struggled. Anytime somebody read the Bible to you or quoted John 3.16 to you or any other part of, of the word of God, you said, man, go away. I don't, I don't need to hear that. I'll, I'll get right one of these days myself, you know. Hey, by the way, did you get right by yourself? Or did God pester you until you came to him? You know, we don't do it by ourselves because we can't save ourselves. The world and the devil don't want anything to do with a selfless, sacrificial nature. A righteous and godly nature that gives all one and uh, that gives all one is and has to meet the needs of the lost, sick, starving, and dying masses of the world. But we do. We care. You see, Jesus had already said to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You see how the love of God affects our lives, everything we say, everything we do. Now, the Lord Jesus knew that, uh, that uh, the disciples themselves were needed in the world after his departure. And so he prays in verses 15 and 16 of John 17. He says, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. Not yet, by the way. One day for sure, because he talked about it in John 14. So he says, I pray not that thou shouldst take them, those disciples, out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil or the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The need was not for them to be taken out of the world. The need was for them to be kept from Satan, to be kept from the wicked one or the evil one. The disciples were called to be ambassadors. They were called to be the messengers of God in the world. God's commission to save the world depended upon their loyalty and their faithfulness. They had to be kept, they had to be protected, and they had to be covered with the full armor of God. Which, by the way, when Paul writes about the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, he's talking about every, every part of the armor that, that, uh, that explains or, or, or represents an aspect or character of Jesus Christ in our lives. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, the shield of faith. Well, we're not going to get on, I wasn't going to get into that, but hey, well, it's all right. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We can't be strong in ourselves. We don't have strength when we, first of all, can, you know, consider ourselves uh, in contrast to God himself and to Christ. We don't have any strength without them. But think about this. What about our contrast to the world and the flesh and the devil? Those are powerful entities as well. And this is what Paul talks about in the next verse. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles 
of the devil, the wiles, the wickedness, the devices, the strategies, the plans of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And by the way, wickedness there is plural, wickednesses uh, in high places. And then Peter himself would also encourage the church and, and again, admonish the church, exhort the church. First Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, uh, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're not alone in walking against the enemy. Because we're not alone, Jesus is with us. His spirit is in us. And his love is everlasting. They were now of the same nature as Jesus, verse 16. The same was stated in verse 14. And this is such a glorious truth then that it, is, it has to be reemphasized by the Lord. And remember, every time I tell you that if, God, if Jesus repeats something, it's of utmost importance. So twice he says this. They're, I'm not of the world, they're not of the world. Twice. All of this brings us to the pinnacle of our text, which is verse 17. Let's read verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word, is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus prayed to his Father that he would sanctify the disciples. Now, to understand the word sanctify, it is, first of all, the Greek word hagiatso. It comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy or holiness. And so to sanctify means to make holy. It means to purify. And it means to consecrate. Now, we need to understand that God's truth is the separating force. God's truth, God's word, is the separating force for us to understand what it means to be sanctified or to sanctify. That is what sanctification does. It separates us from the world unto God. In fact, what we can say is, I am set apart because to be set apart is to be sanctified, to be made holy. I am set apart from the world unto God. You can also say, I am set apart from the world. I am set apart for God. Separated from the world for God, separated for God from the world. It sets us apart from sin and unto the Lord. That's what sanctification does. We, we need to get it into our hearts and into our minds that what the Lord has to say about everything is true. 
So understand that from Genesis to Revelation, everything that God has said is true. Man has tried to change that. Man has tried to change it by introducing, you know, while Satan has tried to change it really, through man, by changing the understanding of, of, of God's creation into evolution and uh, many, many other ways that uh, we've talked about uh, time and time again, uh, gender issues and uh, notwithstanding. But we need to understand that what the Lord has to say about everything is true. Therefore, it is absolute and not relative. Everything God says is absolute, not relative. Everything that God says is complete, not partial. Everything that God says is vital or extreme, actually, and not incidental. To, for, for something to be incidental is just this idea that, uh, oh, by the way, you know, parenthetic, you know, oh, by the way. So, so many people focus on the oh, by the ways, and they don't focus on what is really vital, what is really extreme, what is really complete, what is really absolute. But this is how God speaks to us. And let's also remember this, that the end or the goal of God's truth, and listen carefully, the end or the goal of God's truth is not wisdom. The end of God's truth is not wisdom. That's the goal of the Greeks. And even Jesus said it. The Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The philosophers on Mars Hill during Paul's jaunt through Athens, they sought wisdom. The philosophers of today, the learned of this world, seek only after wisdom. No, the end or goal of God's truth is holiness. And God's word has the power to transform us and to set us apart in holiness, to set us apart unto holiness. In fact, the disciples were told by Jesus in John 15, verse 3, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Clean in the sense of being purified, of being made holy, of being consecrated unto a work for God. To be sanctified is to love sin less and to love God more. And the more that you love him, the more you want to serve him and to be a blessing to others. Simply because his word is truth. We've actually been given three volumes of God's truth. Three volumes of God's truth have been given to us. Volume one, his word is truth, verse 17. That's volume one. His word is truth. Volume two, his son is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me.
That's volume two. And volume three, his spirit is the truth. Remember how many times Jesus said, the spirit of truth when he comes will show you things to come. But there's another verse, verse uh, uh, 1 John 5, verse 6, where John writes, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So we have three volumes of truth given to us. Quite a wonderful gift, isn't it? If we'll look, if we'll look at it, if we'll receive it, and if we'll believe it. And we need all three, by the way. We need all three to know and experience true sanctification, a sanctification that touches every part of our being. Because with the mind, we learn God's truth. With the heart, we love God's truth. And with the will, we live God's truth. By yielding ourselves to the word, and to his spirit every day. Now, to understand verses 18 and 19 of our text, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. Did Jesus need to be sanctified like us? No. So understand. What are you saying? For their sakes I sanctify myself. I am setting myself apart that they also might be sanctified through the truth. I'm setting myself apart right now because I'm going to the cross. Very shortly, I'm going to the cross. Very shortly, I'm going to shed my blood. Very shortly, I'm going to give my life. Very shortly, I'm going to be buried. Very shortly after that, three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And Jesus was setting himself apart. So to understand verses 18 and 19, remember that sanctification is not for the purpose of selfish pleasure or self-importance. Be careful of those who like to boast in their holy accomplishments. Man, the Apostle Paul never did that. The only thing that Paul ever said was, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ because it is on the cross of Jesus Christ that my sins are. That's the only thing I can boast in. So, it is so that we might represent Jesus Christ in this dark world and win others to him that we are to be sanctified and set apart. The text tells us that he set himself apart for us and now he has set us apart for him. The Father sent him into the world. He now sends us into the world. And I want you to remember something. The servant is not greater than his master. Be thankful that he is praying for us so that our witness will bear fruit, it will bear more fruit, and it will bear much fruit until the day of Christ. Today he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's not going to sit there very long. In terms of time and the way that we see things happening in the world, he's going to come very quickly to fulfill what he had promised in John 14 verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's what we need to be ready for. And let me close with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, where Paul writes, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So understand, by asking the question to yourself, who do I serve? Who do I live for, ultimately, if it isn't Jesus Christ? Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And therefore, if any man be in Christ, notice he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You're a new creature in Christ. And you're a new creature in Christ if you came to the Lord 10 days ago or 10 years ago. 40 months ago or 40 years ago. You're a new creature. You're new, brand new. The body's a little bit old, but hey, you know, it's okay. You're new, and that's what matters. Stay new, stay free, stay fresh, stay alive in Christ. Stay young, stay vibrant, stay in Jesus. Amen?